I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Tiffany Bates. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, we're talking about SCOTUS and the police, a pair of lingering Establishment Clause cases, and we'll interview former Associate White House Counsel Mike McGinley. The court issued a couple of opinions this week, and they have 29 cases left to decide before the end of June. So first up was Collins versus Virginia. And in this case, the Supreme Court held that the Fourth Amendment does not allow a police officer to enter someone's driveway to search a parked vehicle without first obtaining a warrant. The Fourth Amendment, by way of background, uh, protects against unreasonable searches and seizures and generally requires police to obtain a warrant before searching or seizing someone's property. The Supreme Court has recognized several exceptions to the warrant requirement, including for automobiles. But the court has also determined that police may not search the curtilage of a home. This is the area immediately surrounding a home without first obtaining a warrant. So this week in Collins versus Virginia, eight members of the court agreed that when the automobile exception and the curtilage protection collide, curtilage wins the day. Writing for eight members of the court, Justice Sonia Sotomayor called this an easy case, explaining that the scope of the automobile exception extends no further than the automobile itself. She said that to find otherwise would transform what was meant to be an exception into a tool for with far broader application. The majority left open for the state court to assess whether one of the other exceptions to the warrant requirements, such as exigent circumstances, might apply to the warrantless search in this case. Justice Alito dissented, remarking that the hallmark of the Fourth Amendment is reasonableness, and the police officer's conduct here was entirely reasonable. He also opened his opinion by saying that the court's decision is not reasonable. Justice Clarence Thomas wrote a concurring opinion Uh, where he suggested that the court might want to revisit a landmark decision from 1961, Map versus Ohio. Uh, But we don't really need to get into the details there. Needless to say, it was a bold Thomas concurrence. Classic Thomas. Classic Thomas. That's why I love him so much. (laughs) Next up is Lagos versus United States. And in this case, the court unanimously held that the Mandatory Victims Restitution Act of 1996 does not require a defendant convicted of wire fraud to reimburse the victim for expenses related to a private investigation of the fraud or attendance at bankruptcy proceedings. So Lagos, the petitioner, pleaded guilty to wire fraud for using a company he controlled to defraud a lender. The lender conducted a private investigation of the fraud and participated in the company's bankruptcy proceedings. So the district court ordered Lagos to pay restitution for the cost of the legal fees related to the fraud, and the Fifth Circuit affirmed. But the Supreme Court uh, unanimously reversed holding that terms such as investigation and proceedings in the MVRA are limited to government investigations and criminal proceedings. There was also a dig this week. The court dismissed as improvidently granted City of Hayes versus Vote, which is about whether the Fifth Amendment is violated when statements are used at a probable cause hearing but not at a criminal trial. So when the court digs a case, it essentially said, we never should have taken this case in the first place, and it leaves the judgment below in place. I think there's usually about one dig or so each term, and a dig here is not completely surprising because after oral argument, um, a lot of people were speculating that the court might do this. And at the argument, Justice Breyer himself even asked whether this was an appropriate case for the court to take. Yeah, I think this was a case out of the Tenth Circuit, Mm -hmm. and Justice Gorsuch was recused. 
And I've seen a lot of speculation that people think uh, the court is interested in the underlying issue and that they just decided this wasn't a, a good vehicle for them to, to decide. So we'll keep an eye out for this issue in future cases. I'm sure it'll be the race of the, the cert petitions now yeah. that people know the court's interested. <laughs> So the court denied cert in a case brought by Planned Parenthood seeking to enjoin Arkansas's law that would require clinics that prescribed abortion-inducing drugs to have an agreement in place with a doctor who has admitting privileges at a nearby hospital. A district court granted Planned Parenthood a preliminary injunction, and the Eighth Circuit uh, reversed and sent it back to the district court, saying that it needed to find concrete findings about the number of women the law would affect. Planned Parenthood instead asked the Supreme Court to take up the case, and in fact, they asked the court to summarily reverse the Eighth Circuit and declare the law facially unconstitutional, Was it, which is a bit of a bold request at this stage in the case, uh, but now the case will proceed back in the district court since the Supreme Court declined review. There's also another set of cases that we've been watching closely. Um, Tiffany, what is going on with Bournemouth and Rowan County? Yeah, so these are pretty important establishment clause cases that the court has not acted on, which is a little bit odd. Uh, Both of these cases are brought by a very experienced Supreme Court lawyer, Allison Ho. Who's also the wife of newly minted Fifth Circuit Judge Jim Ho. Yes, the SCOTUS power couple. (laughs) Um, So in Town of Greece versus Galloway, which the Supreme Court decided in 2014, the court said that legislative prayer does not violate the Establishment Clause. But some lower courts have not listened very well. Um, that's why this is back up. So in Rowan County versus Lund, the Fourth Circuit held that legislative prayer violates the Establishment Clause. But in Bournemouth versus Jackson, the Sixth Circuit held that it did not. So there's a pretty clean circuit split here. And the difference is that in Town of Greece, local ministers rotated and offered the prayer. But here it was town councilmen or the legislators legislators themselves that rotated and offered the prayers, you know, which makes all the historical difference under the Establishment Clause. (laughs) Um, But anyway, it's not just that the court hasn't acted on them. They haven't even considered them yet. So Rowan County has been rescheduled 12 times and Bournemouth has been rescheduled 10 times. And we talked before about the difference between relisting and rescheduling, but as a brief reminder, when the court relists a case, it can mean a number of things, including the possibility that three of the justices are trying to convince a fourth to vote to grant cert, or that someone is writing a dissent from denial. But when the court reschedules a case, it means it hasn't even considered it at a conference yet, and it's been punting it to the next conference. So it's a little bit unusual that these cases are being rescheduled so many times and we don't know what the court is waiting for. It's not like there's a similar you know, issue the court is waiting to decide before they act on these cases. I mean, the travel ban case involves an establishment clause issue, but I'm not sure that it would really affect anything here. So we don't know what's going on. But we'll keep a close eye on that. Anyway, we recently spoke with Mike McGinley. Mike McGinley is a partner at Deckert and former associate White House counsel. Welcome to SCOTUS 101, Mike. Hi, thank you for having me. So you clerked for Justice Gorsuch when he was on the 10th Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, can you tell us about that experience? And is there something people may not know about the justice that you could share? Sure. Um, so it was an incredible experience. I mean, I think that's you know probably pretty obvious at this point, just given what everyone's gotten to see uh, about Justice Gorsuch. I don't know that there's a whole lot to share because he was so thoroughly uh, uh, vetted (laughs) through the process. But I guess the one thing I'd want to say is that sometimes someone like him who has such a sort of squeaky clean public persona, people wonder, is it real? You know, Mm -hmm. or is this just an act that he's able to put on 
when the cameras are rolling in the Senate hearing. And the truth is, with him, it is 100% real. I mean, he is just uh, an incredible person. He's a demanding boss, very intense, but he's intensely loyal to his law clerks, uh, to their families, and to his friends. That's wonderful to hear. So you helped Shepard then judge Gorsuch through the confirmation process. Tell us about that experience. Yeah, I mean, that was, to be honest, an honor and just the thrill of a lifetime. Uh, I went to virtually every Senate meeting with him, which I think totaled over 80. Um, And a lot of the days from January through April, we were spending like 18 hours together. Uh, Sometimes (laughs) it felt like 24 hours together. So, you know, we were already close because I had clerked for him, but it's a whole different bond when you go through that kind of experience with someone uh, and something I'll cherish for the rest of my life. Um, And, you know, the fact that it happened at the beginning of the administration made it all the more special and crazy Mm -hmm. and exciting. And so, you know, to, to just to be able to participate in that and contribute to my country and to help someone that I think the world of was was just a great experience. So during the hearing, he came off, you know, as a, a really swell guy. Um, but now there's a New York Magazine article we recently read calling him the second most polarizing man in Washington. So what's your take on this? Yeah. So I was confused. I don't know who the most polarizing man in Washington is. I think <laughs> I think they were like referring to Scalia. Weren't they? In oh, the I was thinking they were talking oh, about I my other be, former boss. Yeah, I think <laughs> yeah, maybe Trump. I don't uh, know. It wasn't clear. Anyway, <laughs> so you know, I, I would say he is a really swell guy. As I said, you know, he is intensely loyal. And you know, there's one story that I would share, and I think he would be fine with me sharing it. But after I clerked with him, uh, we moved to Washington, and my wife was pregnant with our first child. And within a few months, we found out that she was sick, and she ended up in the hospital. And everybody's fine, and it's all good now. But the very first delivery to her hospital room was from Judge Gorsuch. Oh, uh, and, so you know, to me, I thought, like, yeah, I, I had just been there working with him, but this guy's busy. He's got a lot of stuff to do. I've got a lot of family, and somehow he beat them all to the punch, <laughs> and I think it's indicative of just how, how he is as a person and what he does uh, for the people that, that he loves. That's, That's great. So, sweet. so you had a primo seat right behind then-Judge then Gorsuch during the confirmation hearings. Uh, And there's actually an article, Heavy.com, published about you, Mike McGinley, Five Facts You Need to Know. So tell us about that experience. What was that like? Yeah, I mean, surreal, I think, is the only word that I can say. Uh, I know that my children, who were not seeing me much at that time, were really excited to see me on C-SPAN 2 late at night. And, um, you know, for me, it was it was really just a surreal experience to sit there with him and to watch him go through it and to help him prepare for it and to see... Honestly, to see the months of preparation that we put into that um, process play out, the only analogy that I can really think of for a Senate hearing for a Supreme Court justice is like the most high stakes trial that you can imagine Mm -hmm. where your client is your only witness. The jury is 20 U.S. senators and about (laughs) half of them have already told you they're going to vote against you. Um, So it, it really was incredible. The other thing I would say, all joking aside, is that it, you know, it gave me a respect for the Senate. And especially the Senate Judiciary Committee that I didn't necessarily have before and watching them go through their process of advising and and ultimately consenting was was really a great experience. Chairman Grassley is incredible. Mm -hmm. I think he's the paradigm of fairness. And I think that was um, evident during the hearing. So missing from that list of five facts about Mike McGinley, everybody needs to know. You have a brother who's following in your footsteps. Shout out to our former intern, Pete McGinley. What advice do you have for young, aspiring legal beagles such as your brother? 
Um, sure. So, you know, I've given him a lot of advice. I won't repeat it all here. He probably would <laughs> prefer that I don't repeat it all here. Um, the two main thoughts that I have are that I have always thought of being a lawyer as a vocation. Um, and by that, I mean, it's a service profession. Mm-hmm. I mean, we don't produce products. I mean, we produce briefs, but they're ultimately in service of clients that we have. And our goal is to help those individuals or companies or government officials um, navigate really difficult problems. And particularly if you're practicing at the top of the profession, there are instances where you think, I really like working with this client, but I hope they never have to hire me again because, you know, they're facing really tough existential problems. And I think, you know, for young lawyers, it can get hard because you're spending hours and hours on research projects or document reviews and you can get, you can forget the fact that you went into law. Most people went into the law because either they found it intellectually interesting or they just like helping people. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that helps. It helps you sort of see the forest for the trees, even when you're going through tough spots in your career. The other thing I would say is don't be afraid to take calculated risks. Um, I mean, if you look at my resume, one person <laughs> might say, man, this guy can't keep a job. And another person <laughs> might say he's taken a lot of calculated risks and they've paid off. And that's how I feel about it. Um, you know, one example is I was at Jones Day at the beginning of my career. And then Paul Clement and Viet Din came to me and said, hey, we just sort of started this firm that's going to do Supreme Court litigation. And we want you to come do these cases with us. And... It was not, you know, that big of a risk, but who knew what, you know, really what was going to happen. There was only a few people at first, and it was one of the best decisions I made. So you recently left the White House Counsel's Office to join Deckard. And aside from helping Gorsuch get confirmed, tell us about your experience there. Sure. Um, You know, I would say it was an incredible experience. I mean, in the White House Counsel's Office, you're facing some of the toughest legal issues and they're coming at you at a thousand miles an hour. I bet. (laughs) So just in general, it hones your skills pretty uh, quickly. Aside from judicial confirmations, I spent a lot of time working on regulatory issues and in particular, the administration's big picture regulatory reform initiatives. So this is the one in two out rule and reducing um, regulatory costs. What that meant is I worked closely with the Domestic Policy Council with Naomi Rao and her team of regulatory experts at OMB, with Rachel Brand's team at DOJ, and then a lot of the legal and policy officials at various agencies. Um, so it really was a great experience. Um, the highlight, though, I think I, it's, I think everyone in the office would say this, was that just working with the colleagues that mm-hmm. I had. Uh, and, you know, that starts with Don McGahn, who I think the world of. I mean, I think uh, you know, the, at, at the risk of overstating things, I think Don is probably the most talented and courageous lawyer in Washington. The things that he has to do on a daily basis and the judgment calls that he has to make at at a thousand miles an hour are incredible. He has to shift gears seamlessly between incredibly different uh, legal topics. So that was just a treat to work with those people. That's right. Yeah, we're a little bit obsessed with Don McGann. We Here are. Let's go to <laughs> Rightly so. Uh, So now you've returned to private practice for the third time. You previously worked at Jones Day, as you mentioned, and Bancroft, which merged with Kirkland in 2016. So tell us about working at a boutique appellate firm versus a big law institution. Yeah, sure. Um, So there are pros and cons, as in in anything in life, there's pros and cons to each. Uh, Working at Bancroft was incredible because it was basically a startup, as I was saying. I mean, it was... um, you know, a few senior partners who themselves were pretty young at the time. 
Um, and then a lot of just sort of people who were basically five years or less out of law school who were <laughs> all of a sudden second chairing Supreme Court cases. And so that was just thrilling. And there was a certain sort of camaraderie and a spirit and an ethos that was very clear and very um, defined. And, you know, and you also felt like you were just working with your best friends all the time, <laughs> which was nice, uh, which isn't to say that can't be true at a big law firm. The, you know, on the other hand, an elite global firm like Deckert which is where I am now, provides just this incredible platform to uh, to serve a diverse array of clients and, a, and, and tackle a diverse array of legal issues that may not always be true at a boutique. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and your resources are almost limitless at a place like that, which is, which is great. Um, and you meet, you just get to meet a ton of really just interesting people. You get to meet people from all over the world. You get to meet litigators and uh, transactional attorneys who are experts in various areas of the law. So, you know, I think both are great. And, um, you know, at various points in your career, one or the other might make more sense. You also clerked for Justice Alito on the Supreme Court. And it seems like Alito shies away from the spotlight a little bit. So we know less about his personality. So what's he really like? Um, So I think of Justice Alito as the platonic form of a judge. Uh, To me, (laughs) he is just like, if you imagine what a judge should be like, it's him. And what I mean by that is he's scrupulously fair, not just in applying the law, but in his interactions with his law clerks, with um, court personnel, with anyone that he encounters. He's just such a kind and and fair person. His knowledge of the law is incredibly broad. I mean, he was U.S. attorney in New Jersey, and then he served on the Third Circuit for a very long time before becoming a justice. Um, And so he's he's able to anticipate how doing – one thing in one doctrinal area will have an effect in another doctrinal area that as a young lawyer is an incredible experience to, to have, uh, to see that, that someone's mind working that way. He doesn't seek attention, as you said. Uh, one thing that I don't think a lot of people know is that he's a bit of a prankster and a practical <laughs> joke player. I, I don't want to breach any confidences, so I'm not going to give you examples, but uh, suffice, suffice it to say there was plenty of laughter in chamber. Oh, we're going to have to take to Twitter to see if we can get some stories about Alito the prankster. Yeah. Uh, so what's your favorite memory from your clerkship? Um, so without breaching a confidence, it's hard to pinpoint exactly one thing. I would say mm-hmm. the, you know, my kind of enduring memory of that year is sitting in his office and working through cases the week before arguments. We would sit there and work through every single case. So we'd spend a few hours um, each day before argument and he would patiently sit there and let these, you know, young uh, <laughs> lawyers give a little presentation on the case. And he would sort of think and he'd pause. And then he would put his finger on the precise, most difficult issue in the case. And then we would spend, you know, depending on the case, anywhere from a half hour to, to many hours, just sort of talking it through back and forth. It was not the kind of rhetorical jousting that I think some people might imagine in that setting. It really was this sort of inductive and um, honest effort to seek the truth. And, you know, the other thing I would say that it certainly is not a favorite memory, but is a lasting memory from that year. And I think a lot of former clerks would tell you this is dealing with the death penalty cases. Mm-hmm. Um, and in particular, it, it's hard to do these. It's hard to read the facts. It's hard to know what's going to happen possibly mm-hmm. at the end of the process. Um, but what is heartening is that the court goes through this intense and long preparation for each one of these um, executions 
where they start preparing weeks ahead of time. And then the clerks and the justices devote hours of attention to this. And so you think as terrible as it might be that that what's going to happen or what has happened in the past, this is sort of our justice system at work. And Justice Alito in particular would give a lot of attention to those cases. I can remember calling him at like 1130 or midnight um, and saying, hey, we just got this new filing. He would sit there and talk through it with me mm-hmm. without acting like, he, you know, he really wished that he was in bed. He took it very seriously. And I always thought that was just a very honorable and it, it had a big impact on me. Definitely. So do you have a favorite Alito opinion? Yeah. So I'll give you an easy answer and then I'll give you what maybe is a funny answer. Um, the easy answer is Hobby Lobby, mm-hmm. uh, partly because I was one of the lawyers who worked on that case. And I just thought it was you know, sort of right in Alito's wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was glad that he got the chance to write that. I think it's a very well done opinion. And I think one of the things that makes it really well done and is a hallmark of Alito opinions is that he engages the dissent's argument and the um, the other side's argument in a very thoughtful way and actually addresses their arguments, works through the difficult questions and doesn't just paper them over with rhetoric or mm-hmm. the back of his hand. The The answer that might be funny is that, but only probably to a lawyer, is the <laughs> Texas Fair Housing opinion. He wrote the dissent in that case, and he opens it up with this memorable line of something to the effect of, no one wants to live in a rat's nest. And then he walks <laughs> through how the doctrine at issue had meant that in some previous case, uh, it, it that the... Um, owners of some public housing weren't able to remove rats or something. You know, I don't remember the exact facts, Yeah, but he basically says that's the effect of this doctrine, which I thought was a vivid way to open an opinion. It was a great dissent, a very fiery, uh, fiery dissent. So we have one final question for you. It's something we ask all of our guests here on SCOTUS 101. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about? Yeah. So, you know, I, I'm sure you get a lot of answers that are like, you know, Robert Jackson or John Marshall or whatever. I, <laughs> I actually have one that I think might be a little bit obscure, but shouldn't, we like these <laughs> shouldn't be too obscure. James Wilson. OK. Who, you know, I think some people say he was the first Supreme Court justice. I think there's dispute because of the way that the appointments were made. Um, but he certainly was there at the very beginning. He also was a um, signatory to the Declaration of Independence and played a pretty big role at the Constitutional Convention. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, he gave a speech that's, I think, sometimes called the State House Yard speech that uh, is not remembered in the history books as much nowadays, but they say at the time was maybe as influential or, or almost as influential as the Fe- Federalist Papers in terms of persuading um folks to ratify the Constitution. The other sort of very personal reason that I would like to meet him is that he started his law practice in Reading, Pennsylvania, which is where (laughs) I grew up. And I just would love to hear what it was like 200 years before I lived there, you know, and just sort of what it was like to live in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania at that time and to just go through all the things that he went through. That's great. Yeah, that's great. Well, we'll we'll wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia, Alito slash Gorsuch edition. So, Mike, you'll tell us which of your bosses we've identified in each question. Are you ready? Okay. I'm a little nervous. <laughs> It'll be fun. Uh, first question. Who first used the Charles Dickens line from Oliver Twist about how the law is a ass? Um, so, I know Alito just used it recently, but I know for sure that Gorsuch used it at least a few years ago. So, I'm going to go with Gorsuch. Alito actually used it in a 
2008 dissent in a case dealing with the warrantless search of a vehicle. And as you mentioned, it appeared in Collins versus Virginia in his dissent this week. And uh, now Justice Gorsuch used it in a 2016 dissent in a case where a kid was arrested for burping in class. Yes. Quite <laughs> so a Alito was first. So Alito that was first. Okay. That, as far as we can find. Well, yes. so I, my only quibble is I'm sure that Gorsuch said that to me orally at some point. <laughs> 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 Although that probably was still not, not before Alito used it. <laughs> okay. Second up. While in college, who said that he hoped to eventually warm a seat on the Supreme Court? That was definitely Justice Alito. Yes. He apparently wrote it in his Princeton yearbook. (laughs) Which he says was a joke. Um, I think, you know, to anybody else, they probably knew that it was destined. (laughs) Third question. Who went to law school with President Obama? Gorsuch. That is correct. They both went to Harvard. And fourth question. Gorsuch was on the appeals court that decided Hobby Lobby at the Tenth Circuit, and Alito wrote the majority opinion when the case reached the Supreme Court. So whose opinion starts this way? All of us face the problem of complicity. All of us must answer for ourselves whether and to what degree we are willing to be involved in the wrongdoing of others. For some, religion provides an essential source of guidance, both about what constitutes wrongful conduct and the degree to which those who assist others in committing wrongful conduct themselves bear moral culpability. That was Gorsuch. Yeah. Good job. Yeah. Yes, it was. We thought that would be a a hard one. (laughs) Uh, Okay, fifth and final question. Which of your former bosses has a connection to Marianne Trump-Berry? Alito served with her on the Third Circuit. He did, and there's an additional connection. He also um, worked for her when she was the U.S. Attorney for New Jersey. Yes, okay. Well, I think you did a great job, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you guys for having me. Thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts, and please leave us a rating if you enjoy listening. Please also follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS101, and you can email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. You've been listening to SCOTUS101, executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery and Tiffany Bates. Sound designed by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit heritage.org.